I think the name of the game now is really shared decision making. It's not just Dr. Lambert says, do this, so do it. It's what does the patient want? What does the family want? I try not to assume assume nothing. So if something's happening, don't blame the patient. Again, have an art of inquiry about why is this happening? Why is there a breakdown here? Let's work together to try to fix it. And again, that facilitates trust and good patient provider relationships. Welcome to another episode of Advocates in Action, a podcast created by the National Patient Advocate Foundation, a nonprofit that develops initiatives promoting equitable access to affordable quality health care through policy action and partnerships. I'm your host, Ashley Freeman. Today, I'm honored to speak with Dr. Carl Lambert, who is a family physician and assistant professor at Rush Medical College. When he isn't with his patients, he's spending quality time with his wife and son. He also loves exercising and traveling. It's a pleasure and honor to chat with you today, Dr. Lambert. Uh, So let's start here. What inspired you to become a family physician? The pleasure is all mine. Started when I was a kid. So I'm the oldest of three boys and uh, I have two younger brothers with autism. So developmental disabilities. So a lot of my um, upbringing was going to doctor's appointments with my family and actually at Rush where I currently work. So I got to see how the doctors treated us, treated my parents and they didn't talk over us. They talked right to us. So it was a very personal touch. They treat us with dignity. They treat us with compassion and integrity. And I, I kind of caught the bug, so to speak, from them. I thought that was cool like how you could use your knowledge of like the human body and science and math and relationship to help someone get better, whether that's physically, emotionally, if holistically. That's what I kind of took from that. And that kind of just set me on the path of just seeking opportunities that would be similar to medicine. So I knew that I wanted to be a doctor because it kind of merged that and being an educator and an advocate. And I was fortunate along the way to have mentors who happened to be family doctors. So for instance, this family doctor at my church, I was able to spend the summer with after my first year of medical school. And then I really solidified that I want to be like him. I can't be him, but I want to do that. I want to have long-term relationships with not just one person, but like the grandparents, the cousins, the uncles, and be the family doctor for units of people. I think there's a certain power to knowing the context of where people come from, barriers that they might face, and just being with them during the ups and downs. You're, You're that trusted, consistent, safe space for them. So I've been fortunate to have mentors, teachers, a village of people who really encourage me to kind of stay the course, because it has not always been easy as a black man, you don't always see yourself. Yeah, that's awesome that one, you had mentors and the fact that the seed was instilled in you at such a young age and you had people along the way that nurtured that, you know, and added water to it. That's that's really beautiful. And I know you mentioned that the power, I love that you use the word the power, the power of being a family physician is that lasting relationship and creating a safe space. So for you, how do you create that safe space? How do you build trust? You know, what is your role in your patient's lives as that consistent face and provider? Yeah, I think you you just have to have an attitude of humility. So one thing that this path to becoming a doctor, sometimes you can get very haughty <laughs> if you're not careful. Like you get a lot of knowledge, you get a lot of degrees and specialties. I mean, you get paid to do what you do and all these de- prestige and such. Uh, I always try to have a, a lowly 
humble posture because I think when you come to the doctor, you want them to know things, right? You want them to be competent and good at what they do, but you don't want them to be a jerk. (laughs) You want them to be compassionate. You want them to be able to have maybe walked the walk that you have, right? Come from where you've come from. You don't want someone talking over you or or coming from an arrogant place. So I always try to just set that straight. You know, when I meet new patients, try to get to know them, not even talk about the medical stuff, just like, hey, what are your interests? What are your hobbies? How'd you get to this place? Just getting to know you as a person, as a human first and foremost. I think that creates safety for patients to be vulnerable because it's a sacred space, right? The doctor's office and that examination room, patients will tell you all sorts of stuff, things that they wouldn't even tell their spouse, closest family. They'll tell you readily because they trust you. And that's a huge responsibility. And I think if you remember that and that shapes the attitude in terms of how you interact with patients, you really can't lose in terms of creating safety and and strong relationships with patients. It's so ironic that you said humility and relatability and expressing that you've walked the walk because in one of my previous interviews for this season in a podcast with this woman, Beverly Rogers, I asked her about what have her best interactions with providers been? And she said exactly that, you know, providers who have that human touch and understand that yeah, right now you're in this position where you have the knowledge and the know-how and all of this, and I'm on the other end listening to you. But at the same time, they understand the reverse. At any moment, that can change, and you can be on the opposite end of this as a patient. None of us are too high and mighty to be on that other end. And so for you, it seems like you already had that, like, mental understanding, but have you had any life experiences either personally or through family that have shown you, you know, the importance of humility because now you are on the other end navigating this and and learning along the way just like your patients do? Yeah, there's there's two examples that come to mind. One is kind of funny now, the other one's not so funny. I'll start with the, the funny-ish one. I was training for the St. Jude's half marathon. I was raising money for pediatric cancer. And, uh, you know, I'm not a runner. <laughs> I don't have a runner's body, but I was like, I want to do this. <laughs> and uh, almost killed me, but I did it. I raised the funds, felt really good, like probably the best shape of my life. The day after the race, I go to the gym and I drop a 45 pound plate on my big toe. And uh, now I'm a patient, right? <laughs> At the hospital gym. <laughs> So I'm like, wow, what do I do? What do I do? How do I navigate this? So I'm used to giving patients referrals and experts. I didn't <laughs> I had to call my office and say, you know, I hurt myself. What what do I do? And they're like, wait a minute, is this Dr. Lima, are you calling us for this? Like, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> so I was like, it's a long story. I just need help. So I had to go through the the rigors of being a patient. So I had to see a a you know a urgent care. We have an urgent care in our office, so I had to go to the walk-in urgent care, get an x-ray, go to radiology with my insurance card and navigate all these different places to get things done. And then I had to go see the orthopedic surgeon. And again, providers, you we want to know first and foremost that you care. We kind of assume that you know stuff, but we may not listen until we know that you care. And I was fortunate to have an orthopedic surgeon who was an older black male physician. So we immediately connected And he really just sat me down. He was just really compassionate and knowledgeable. And I was scared. Even if you know the medicine behind broken bones, you're like, well, okay, am I going to be able to walk again? Am I going to be able to run again? And, 
you have all these questions and fears. And this is me as a physician, like so let alone a patient or a lay person, right, where there's tragedy, much higher levels than just, you know, dropping a weight on your foot. You know, that experience gives you a greater sensitivity to what patients have to go through just to get to the doctor, right? There's so many hurdles and obstacles, you know, with getting to the doctor, taking medicines, going to the pharmacy, understanding side effects and going to specialists and trying to know what the heck they're talking about. The second not so great thing that came to mind is that I'm a new dad. I have an eight month old son. He was born very premature. So he actually is still in the hospital, went to the NICU and now he's in the PICU and is uh, medically complex. So he needed a tracheostomy and and all these different things. So again, even as a family physician, you get trained in a lot of this stuff, but it's until it happens to you, you're in that seat as a patient and you have to learn how to trust your care team. And you need to make sure that your care team is explaining things to you in a way that you fully understand. And I remember very early on, I told them like, look, I'm a physician, so I know a lot of things, but I don't know everything. Right. So I'd say when you talk to me, Mm. I'll kind of set the pace. I'll say, hey, you can talk to me as a doctor right now. Or I might say, hey, just talk to me as a regular person. And then my wife, Mm -hmm. she's in mental health. So I said, for the sake of both of us, just talk to us, (laughs) you know, as if we don't have healthcare backgrounds and stuff. We probably understand most of what you're saying, but we're kind of in the seat of parents. So, again, we need to know that you care and that you're I mean, I'm going to hold you accountable for being knowledgeable because, you know, I'm watching and and I know things. So like, don't don't try to talk over me. Don't try to rush through things because I'm going to know. Right. So those are two instances where I had to kind of sit and currently am sitting in the seat of of being there for someone who may not be able to to advocate for themselves. Like my son, he can't necessarily advocate for himself or even my mom, which he had to see a, a provider with a diagnosis of asthma and hypertension and diabetes and just helping her to translate what the doctor's saying and say, okay, next time you go to the doctors, here's the list of questions you should ask, right? Or do you want me to come with you? Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, there's been several instances where I've had to had to be that intermediary. So I, I think, again, that keeps you humble and it really helps to shape how I interact with patients too. Thank you so much for sharing those stories. It just shows the importance of humility and trust and caring. Like you said, you walked in with knowledge and understanding of what was going on. But still, at the same time, there is this level of newness to the situation because you are on that other end. And that's what this whole season is about is redefining health literacy. And you mentioned like walking in with questions and fears. So for you, what does health literacy mean to you and how has your understanding of it adapted over time to help your patients when they come in with those fears and doubts and worries? I I will often say I want patients to take ownership of their own health. I want the patient to be fully knowledgeable. I want them to know what medicines they're taking, the indications for them, why they're taking them, who prescribed it, why is Dr. Lambert having you see this specialist? You know, I want them to to really be following the plan uh, and not just going along for the ride. Like, I, I don't want them to be a passive, you know, participant. I want them to know, like, everything that's happening. They deserve that, right? I think that's a dignifying thing is to make sure your patients are tracking you and that they are aware They feel safe and confident in what's happening, right? Not that they need to be able to explain that like a physician would, but there's a certain level that I want patients to be able to achieve. And that's with support. Like, that's not me assuming, like, 
not without support from me, healthcare team, medical assistants, my medical students even. Our team can help reinforce that. That's an area where we partner patients. Back when I was a student, or even prior to that, there was a very patriarchal attitude where I'm the doctor, you're the patient, just do what I say. And if you don't do what I say, you're, you're, you're being you know, not adherent, you're being a bad patient. And nowadays, you kind of have to flip that around and say, well, we just can't blame the patient. Like, we have to see, well, what sort of barriers are there that, because I, I don't think I've really met a patient that just says, no, I don't want to be engaged in my care. <laughs> like, no, I've not heard, I've not had many patients that actively are involved in, in doing harm to themselves per se, right? Uh, a lot of patients, they want to do, they, that's why they're coming to see you. They want help. They want to do what's right. And sometimes there's just barriers and obstacles that we need to help them traverse. Because, again, just from my own personal stories, there are a lot of things that can get in the way and get muddied and can become complicated and overwhelming even in terms of just new diagnoses. A one medicine, I've had patients where it's just one new medicine and they're just so overwhelmed with what does this mean? How is this going to change my life? Am I going to be able to do the things that I used to do? Am I going to be the same? All these things, are, I, I think, are involved with health literacy. And then even the basics of, are you taking your medicine every day? Are you taking it as prescribed? Do you understand like what it's called? Do you know how to pronounce it? All these, they're, they're little things, but they're big things at the same time. Because if you don't address them, that's when you start having safety events and they become bigger problems. The other piece is, not only am I aware of it, but it's something that I'm teaching to students, like health literacy, social determinants of health, systemic racism, and all these just barriers that historically have fumbled <laughs> that we're guilty of as a healthcare establishment has really set some patient populations in bad footing. So we have some catching up to do. We have some things to do that we have to meet the patient where they are. I love that you shared the importance of teaching students about those barriers. Have they been receptive to it? Very positive. The, the students nowadays, they're very progressive, at, at least at Rush. I think the, the type of students that we admit, they're very socially conscious. They want to take over the world. They want to help marginalized populations and they want the tools to do that. So we have a roles-based curriculum. So we have modules and just sessions to kind of teach them how to be an advocate. How do you communicate well? How do you collaborate with different community stakeholders? How do you do a quality improvement project? How do you do projects that, again, you're involving the community. You're not going and saying, here's what you need, but you're involving the community in terms of, of your plans to improve something in the community. How do you become a leader? How do you become a scholar? So we have that embedded. And I think that tends to be a draw for the students. So they fall right in and a lot of them, they may have experience doing it. So it's not uncommon for pre-med students to have shadow doctors to have worked as scribes or to work in long-term care facilities where they're seeing this sort of work in action. And I think the name of the game now is really shared decision-making. It's not just Dr. Lambert says, do this, so do it. It's more of a, here's my strong recommendation. Where are you from zero to 100? How confident are you in following that plan? And depending on what it is, the patient takes more of the lead, right? That's when you start talking about, say, end-of-life care. It's not so much about what I want. What does the patient want? What does the family want? What are their goals of care? So it, it's like this sliding scale, depending on what the issue is, there's a certain amount of this decision that I'll make versus the patient and, and vice versa. It's very commonplace and kind of baked in <laughs> to student experience. A lot of medical care now, it's very collaborative and interdisciplinary anyway. So that's a good thing. That's a good thing. 
That's definitely a good thing. Taking a step in the right direction. And I know you mentioned part of that curriculum is communications. And here at MPAF, we're always talking about how communications is a two-way street. All parties have a role and a responsibility. So for you, how do you know when a patient is really understanding you and vice versa? How do you know when you're really understanding the patient? That's a fabulous question. I wish I had the, the magic tech. Right. It's not the same as how do you know when someone's potassium is low? I could do a blood test and say, yeah, your potassium is low. This is a little different in terms of capturing that. I'm identifying something that may be a, a patient need that we can address. So some things that I'll do is just check in and check in often. I think the beauty of family medicine is that I get to see patients several times over the years. It's not just a one and done. Right. It's not an emergency room visit. I get to see you pretty often. So, I mean, there might be tip offs, like say I start a blood pressure medicine. And the blood pressure is worsening. That opens the door to have a discussion about, hey, you remember that medication I prescribed? And they'll say, yeah. It's like, well, are you taking it? And they'll say, no. <laughs> and I'll say, okay. Again, no shame, but like always having an inquisitive spirit, an art of inquiry when you do these things. Not shame, but just inquiring. Like, well, why is that? You know, I've been amazed by some of the things that I've heard. They'll say, hey, I read the side effects and it says it makes your hair fall out. And I'll say, well, no, that's a different class of medicine or the risk of that is less than 1%. So it's very safe for you to take it, right? So I have to be sensitive that patients, we have information at our fingertips. So patients will do their own research and all that. And that is well and good, but I try to tell patients, hey, bring that information to me because I can help to make sense of it. There's a lot of information out there. Some of it can be missing or it may not apply to you and the, the several different conditions that you may have. So it just opens up the conversation to course correct. Or if there truly is an issue, we can say, OK, well, maybe this medicine doesn't gel with you. Let's let's switch it to something else. Right. So, you know, again, that's their shared decision making. It's like my goal is just to get the blood pressure controlled so that we can keep you living as long as possible. And there's no long term consequences from uncontrolled hypertension or diabetes or whatever the condition is. We can get there in many ways. But the point is to just be truthful with one another in terms of if something's not working checking in and just saying, well, why isn't this working? Is it a cost issue? If it's a cost issue, there's a different plan for that, right? Well, maybe we can do something on a sliding scale or a $4 list at Walmart or Sam's Club or something. When you check in and you check in often, it allows you to troubleshoot. And I think that further facilitates trust. Like this, the patients will say, hey, the, he's not rushing me off. He's actually asking questions that shows that he cares and that he's invested. So just, again, being inquisitive about how things are going in your patient's life and checking in with the plans that you're making. Using things other than verbal or written words. So a lot of times we will get printouts <laughs> and I don't have the data, but I did a poll of how many of my patients actually look at the resources I give them at the end of the visit. It probably isn't 100%. It may not even be 50%, right? I'll say, this is your homework. Sometimes that helps. I'll say, this is your homework. I'm giving you homework. I want you to study this because it really is important. So Again, showing that you care. But in addition to that, you can use visuals. You can use apps, right? There's apps that sometimes I'll encourage patients to use. There's patient portals now. That's another way for patients to ask questions in between, you know, patient visits. So they feel like there's accessibility, that the doctor's not far away or we're around. Like me and our healthcare team, we're here to meet your needs in case there's a question, no matter how big or, or small it is. Again, enlisting your team. This is where I use my students a lot. I'll say, hey, we had a great interaction with Ms. 
so-and-so, but I think she could use a little bit more education around diabetes and exercise and diets. The students are very good at this. I'll say, spend another 10, 15 minutes going over the handout, drawing pictures, however you want to do it, just breaking it down a little bit further. Because sometimes you can tell the patient's really invested and they're excited, (laughs) especially if they're like, I'm ready to make some positive lifestyle changes. But, you know, in medicine, there are time constraints. There's always another patient. So that's when you can enlist your your other members of your team to kind of carry on where you left off. So that could be medical assistant, student, or even uh, we have dietitian and nutritionists in our office. So getting the whole team involved in terms of educating the patient. Yeah. Those were all really great tips. (laughs) I I love that. The, The art of inquiry. I was like, ooh, that's good in all scenarios, right? I feel like <laughs> that's true. That's good in all scenarios. For sure. And the main thing that I heard is time, right? And time right. does show that you care and that you're invested. And it's kind of like a form of respect because time is the one yeah. thing that you can't get back. So if you're spending that extra 10 minutes sending a student to further explain something or take a deeper dive with someone, they really feel like, wow, I'm really respected and cared for. And I think that yeah. is a lost art in medicine, but also in a lot of fields. So yeah. that's really beautiful. That's a really beautiful approach. I try not to assume, assume nothing. So if something's happening, don't blame the patient. Again, have an art of inquiry about, well, wh- why is this happening? Why is there a breakdown here? Let's work together to try to fix it. And again, that facilitates trust and good patient-provider relationships. What would be the golden rule that you would suggest that we all listen to that would help us achieve better health literacy and communications? I probably have to go back to the check-in and check-in often. That could be done during office visits. That could be in between office visits. You could do calls to patients. Sometimes my medical assistants can call them every once in a while and say, hey, how are things? And they can sometimes catch if there's an issue and they'll say, oh, wow, that doesn't sound good. Let's try to get you in with Dr. Lambert or one of his partners. Asking questions that'll get you the information that you're looking for in terms of trying to figure out if there's an issue with health literacy. And then I think normalizing the language, right? So if you are concerned about that, make sure that you name it. You say, hey, am I saying too much medical jargon? The point is, at the end of the day, I just want the relationship to be good. And most importantly, I want your health and wellness to be good. Thankfully, I think we're in a time where physicians and providers, we're more aware of really having to show up for our patients and not just burden them (laughs) with all this stuff, but we have to make sure that we're packaging it in a way that patients can understand it. And everyone is an individual. Everyone has different maybe levels of education, different funds of resources. So we have to keep that in mind when we communicate with patients. It's a very fluid and flexible thing, but there's certain principles that that you can use um, no matter who you see. And it really does come down to just humility, inquisitiveness, respect, compassion, and really just good communication, just good patient-centered communication. I'm Ashley Freeman, and thanks for listening to this episode of Advocates in Action. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, review, and share this podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. We enjoy connecting with our listeners, so please visit our website at npaf.org slash podcast for show notes, resources, and ways to engage with us on social media. Thanks for listening.